Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Matt Lynch is sitting here with me today. Matt is the marketing coordinator at Scarecrow Video in Seattle. If you are a film geek, you will know that Scarecrow is the largest independent video store in the country with over 130,000 individual titles available for rent. Matt has dedicated over 14 years of his life to Scarecrow, helping it grow and evolve over time. Given that our relationship to film art has, more often than not, migrated to digital and streaming services, nurturing this vibrant film archive and the community that forms around it is a genuinely wonderful achievement. And I'm really looking forward to not only talking about Scarecrow as a place, but about the idiosyncrasies of those who love the place and depend on it. So Matt, let's get ready to rumble. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's start with a little bit about you. Can you share with us how your choices in life and your passions led you to Scarecrow? I mean, what type of relationship have you had to films in your life and how did it evolve to to where you are now? I like that that you said my choices in life. I question those choices all the time. I came to Scarecrow totally by accident. I went to film school, as it were, you could call it film school, at Penn State in the late 90s. Met a girl, fell in love, didn't graduate, moved to Philadelphia with her. We split up. She had a relative, a sister who lived in Seattle. Circumstances meant that we had to continue living together. We had come out to visit here a couple of times loved Seattle, and finally convinced each other to move out here together. At the time, I had recently read an article in a magazine, and I honestly don't remember what magazine it was. It may have been like Details or something like that, that had a little blurb about Scarecrow and had a picture. And uh, I mean, you have to remember that at that point, this is 2001, 2002, the place was half as jammed with titles as it is now. You know, they said it was the biggest video store in America. And I said, I've got to see it. So we came out here to Seattle. I visited a few times. And it was the first place I applied for a quick job when I moved here. And they hired me right away, which is also crazy because we have extraordinarily low turnover even to this day. And uh, I never left. Mm -hmm. Like uh, maybe like an idiot, but I'm still there. It's probably the only place I really belong. My relationship with film goes back to when I was a child. I always felt like I was a lot smarter than the other neighborhood kids. I didn't have any interest in riding bikes or playing baseball. And my dad worked in TV news, so there were televisions in every room. The TV was always on. For me, it was always tuned to, uh, you know, the local independent stations, the UHF stations that were playing movies around the clock. This is before cable was really ubiquitous. We had cable, but there were only like 30 channels. Mm-hmm. We went to the movies every weekend. That was the kind of thing that my hermitish parents, they, they're not really social people. So movies were just sort of always in my brain, and it became the only thing that I got good at. It became the only thing that I could understand. I couldn't do math. I couldn't grasp sports. I wasn't interested in politics. I would only relate emotionally to anything through movies at that time. Um, And it just sort of became an obsession. I remember having favorite movies as a kid. I I remember my, my mom, one Christmas Eve, Die Hard played on HBO. I'd never seen it. This is about a year after it came out. And I was supposed to go to bed and my mom said, no, you should stay up. Watch this movie. You're going to love it. And I remember noticing for the first time a director's name and it was John McTiernan and he had done Predator, which I had seen about a million times on cable and on VHS. And so I remember making those associations very young saying like, oh, this is this this name is on that other movie and this person was involved in that other project. And 
all of those things synthesized very, very young, you know, 10, 11, 12, and they just sort of exploded all at once. And I became a cinephile out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. That was in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, when access to movies was not what it is today, even given video stores. And it wasn't until 94 when Pulp Fiction came out and I would have been 15. And uh, and I remember my mom taking me to see Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Poor woman. <laughs> and that movie really exploded me. I didn't know what to do with that mm-hmm. at the time. I, j- I knew I loved it, but I had no idea. You know, it's easy to say, oh, Tarantino synthesizing all of these influences and all of this stuff. But I had never heard of Jean-Luc Godard. Mm-hmm. I had never heard of Don Siegel. I didn't know any of those things that he was doing. And I read a lot about that movie because I became pretty obsessed with it. And I'm still a big Tarantino acolyte to this day. But at the time, I had no idea what he was up to. And it became kind of an obsession to track down all of the stuff that he was riffing on or ripping off or whatever you wanted to call it. I'd seen Reservoir Dogs, but it didn't occur to me that he was doing that there. That movie really sort of set me down the path of, of being a real like investigator, somebody who goes and like digs up stuff mm-hmm. and looks for things that nobody's heard of and looks for things that, that you know, are obscure mm-hmm. as opposed to being, a, you know, a teenage movie fan who like went and saw whatever was out that weekend. Yeah, so you do a deep dive in an individual title and find all the little nooks and crannies of relationships. <laughs> you, you can. Yeah. You can. It's, it's weird. It's hard to do that now because I've been doing it for, you know, 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Those things all coalesced within a few years. And then I decided to, I decided I wanted to make movies. I didn't have much interest in going to college. And for some extenuating circumstances, I decided I was going to do that anyway. My parents were very adamant, of course, that I was going to go to college. Bless their hearts. They paid for it. Then I went to college and when I went to a film program at Penn State, which was an okay, it was an okay program. Uh, We were the last year to actually work on film. They don't do that anymore there. Mm. But I shot and cut 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter film. And I made a couple of movies and I decided that not only was I bad at it, but I hated it. Mm. I was really, really terrible at making movies. And I especially hated the, the like hands on process of making them. I liked editing because that seemed really organic. That seemed like something you could just do. It seemed like watching a music video or, or even making one. Just you knew where the cuts were supposed to go. You knew. But but the process of shooting and producing and getting actors together and all that stuff and writing things, oh my God, what a pain in the ass. Just not for me. I couldn't do it. I didn't like giving orders to my friends. It was terrible. Uh, but what I found out I was really good at was watching and talking and thinking about movies. So I found the only steady gig that I could get, which is working in video stores. Uh, at the time, the internet was pretty nascent. Well, relative to what it is now. So the idea of becoming like a critic or something was not not really something that entered my head. Now I, I occasionally write movie reviews and stuff, but that it turned out that the only thing I was really good at was like was talking about movies. Mm. It's just striking that we have a few things in common. When I was growing up, my dad died and my mom was a single mom for a while and she had a boyfriend and one of her boyfriends had a laser disc player. Oh yeah, I had a laser disc player. And he had about maybe 24 laser mm-hmm. discs, which at the time was probably 80% of the full totality of laser discs available. <laughs> so I would watch over and over again what was there, which is Taxi Driver, which was mm-hmm. the man with the golden arm or it was uh, Diamonds Are Forever. Ooh, it the was worst Enter James Bond the Dragon. <laughs> yeah, but for me it was great. And, oh, I loved you know, it, but it's still mm-hmm. the worst. <laughs> 
So yeah, I would watch uh, those laser discs, and because there were only twenty four of them, dig very deeply and think、mm-hmm. very deeply about each one of these. I moved to Seattle about ten years ago from Philadelphia.、We、oh also, really? My not my wife at the time. We visited, loved Seattle, and decided, yeah, let's just move、It's、here. Way、That's、better、it. than Philadelphia. Yeah, love yeah. Philly, yeah. but yeah, it wasn't for me. And and I've worked with with friends and and others to make films and think about films. I even have a Bolex wind up sixteen mm. Oh, that's what、camera. I shot films on in、uh, in film school. Was a Bolex spring wound camera. Yeah. So now everybody listening to the podcast is saying, okay, guys, you know, get a room, move on. <laughs> so let's move on a little bit and talk about Scarecrow specifically, and tell us a bit more about Scarecrow, the place itself. I mean. What was the place like when it first opened, and how has it evolved over time? Especially as video formats and people's habits change, what's the history, the arc of Scarecrow? the the story The vague story that I know is that、uh, a man named George Latios, who was our founder, he was a film fanatic, and he one day decided to stop what he was doing, and I honestly don't remember what that was, and and open a video store with his wife Rebecca. And at the beginning, as far as I know, it was just like a, his own collection out of his house. He would rent stuff to friends,、mm-hmm. things like that. He eventually moved into the back of a record store, and again, I might be getting a lot of these details wrong, but I believe that that record store was Bob Street Records, which is still around in Ballard. The collection kept growing and growing, and the business kept flourishing, so to speak. And he moved into a place on Latona, pretty close to where we're currently at. And then about twenty some odd years ago,、uh, we moved into our current location on Roosevelt in the U District. The store itself has been around for almost thirty years, and yeah, we've got almost one hundred thirty thousand titles. Whereas George started with about six hundred.、Mm-hmm. Um, George was, from all by all accounts, a really great guy and a terrible businessman. <laughs> Um, there are many stories about Scarecrow's financial difficulties over the years, its potential closings, and numerous potential sales. Sadly, George passed away not long before I started working there. When I began working there, it was owned by a couple of Microsoft guys, a guy named Carl Tostevin and John Dauphiny was the other owner. John retired and moved to Florida many, many years ago. Carl、uh, and his wife Mickey. Stuck with the place for a long time, basically like writing a check to keep it open.、Mm. Uh, when we started to sort of slip into a declining period, when they decided that they didn't want to be involved in that anymore, a couple of other employees and the partner of one of our employees decided that the place couldn't go away, and we pulled some resources and a couple of brains and decided to take it nonprofit,、mm-hmm. and that was 2014.、Mm. And I heard you hate this question. I hate lots of questions, but I'm going to ask it because it might make it more fun. Okay, <laughs> you know, clearly there's an overpowering trend around us for people to get their films via digital. Are you going to ask me how is streaming decline like affected Scarecrow's business? Yes, how does it continue to thrive in the midst of this、uh, cultural shift? Are, and are you noticing any tangible changes from your point of view on the floor of the store? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I like to answer this question with a question, which、uh-huh. is, what do you think the answer to that question is? I s- perhaps see less foot traffic from the casuals, but the diehards who are very similar in mentality to you and arguably to me will still go there and form almost a subculture and and keep it.、Going. That's pretty much how it is. Yeah, I mean, streaming has definitely declined the industry as a whole. Video stores have vanished.、Uh, Rain City is just closing. They've they used to have like three stores in the area, and now they're down to one, and that's closing at the end of March, early April. Yeah, I mean, obviously, video stores are on the decline, and the reason for that is not necessarily. I mean, it is because streaming has dominated the industry, but 
the reason that streaming has dominated the industry is because they have managed to trick people into thinking that they can get anything they want that way. And mm-hmm. they just can't. And this is not new news to anybody who reads movie blogs or pays attention to movies at all. But it's hard for people that live in that bubble that mm-hmm. I live in that, and experience that to understand that most people are casual movie watchers at best. Some people watch 10 movies a year. Most people watch 20 movies a year, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you can live on that diet on $8 a month from mm-hmm. Netflix. But if you're like me mm-hmm. or even somebody who's 20% like me, that's a starvation diet. Yeah. It explains actually a phenomenon that my wife and I go through whenever we, we turn on Netflix and I grab the remote mm-hmm. and I basically spend 30 minutes paging through it all because A, I have seen most of this already or yeah. B, it's And what you haven't seen sucks. And I have fear of missing out. I want to see that yeah. obscure film that I know exists, but will they have it? Will they won't? And at some point, yeah. my wife just takes the remote away from me and says, here we go. Yeah, we're go. picking something. Um, and, th- and, and there's also, because we're in Seattle, it's affected us a little bit more. The, the way that the city has changed, there's been a large influx of people who work very hard they have very demanding jobs. And when they go home to watch something, they want something that they can not have to pay too hard attention to, mm-hmm. um, which is not to suggest that they are failing themselves or the art or whatever you want to call it. It's more of that. I mean, I know how that feels to go home and just want to tune out. And that's why Netflix's TV shows are very attractive because you can just press the button and when you fall asleep, it's still on. But I, I do think that there was a really good article on the AV Club many years ago called the, about the convenience trap. I think it was written by either Nathan Raven or Scott Tobias. I honestly don't remember who. And he called it the convenience trap. This idea that like, well, now I don't have to go anywhere or think about anything. It's mm-hmm. just in front of me. Yeah. And I think that that is the thing that has sort of lulled people into a false sense of security, that they're getting everything that they can or getting everything that they want. So is it a trend that needs to be resisted or fought against, or is it just a fact? And, and Scarecrow, what Scarecrow needs to do is simply provide a different type of experience or a qualitatively distinct experience for people that surpasses that offered by streaming. Do you fight it, or are you saying it's going to happen, but we provide an additional layer which you won't get? I, w- I would definitely say column B. I don't yeah. think that it's worth fighting because the battle's lost if we're going to fight it. People have accepted that part of their lives. That's the way, that's the delivery device that they're going to choose nine times out of 10. But we do provide a qualitatively different experience. We do provide a massively different catalog. And I think that the thing that we have to fight is not the delivery device. It's simply the idea that there is a value in leaving your house, going to a place browsing a catalog and taking something home. Mm. I like to say, and you've probably heard me say this before, you can watch what they've got or you can come to Scarecrow and get something you want. Mm. And I think that that's an important difference. What about Filmstruck? Filmstruck, for those who are listening and you may know this already, is a relatively new, probably three-month streaming service that that serves a lot of... uh, foreign independent films particularly the criterion collection do you have a bittersweet thought about filmstruck because i would no. assume scarecrow would own the physical yes. entities and now here comes filmstruck allowing that streaming that filmstruck is great through. and you know filmstruck that's a great service especially for people who don't have access to something like scarecrow it does bum me out a little bit that you know now a lot of the people that used to come in just to get the criterion stuff won't have to but 
that said, uh, one of the interesting things about the Criterion Collection is their dedication to quality and streaming honestly cannot provide the visual texture that the Blu-rays can. And also, I think that most of our business conducted with reference to the Criterion stuff specifically is, is people coming in and buying those discs. Mm-hmm. We sell a lot of Criterion stuff. Um, we have a really good relationship with them and they've always been really, really good to us. No, those little streaming services don't bother me. There's one that I use called exploitation.tv, which is run by a little label called Vinegar Syndrome. Mm-hmm. I have access to most of their physical titles at work whenever I want them. But there's plenty of stuff on their channel that's not available on any kind of physical media or if it is, it's much it's in uh, much poorer quality. So I use that all the time. I don't really have a problem with streaming. I think that there is a point where we need to coexist. And I think that we can do that pretty comfortably. I just think that there needs to be some way of incentivizing people to come and have that experience. And unfortunately, it's very hard to convince them that the incentive is sort of right in front of their eyes. Mm-hmm. Seattle has lots of bad traffic and lots of bad parking and yeah. all this stuff. And it can be a pain in the ass to come to a store and you know do that. Rentals and late fees. People are out of that mode of thinking. Unfortunately, it's not financially viable for us to sort of go to a subscription model like Netflix. We can't really offer people the idea that like, oh, for X amount of money, you can have X amount of titles Mm -hmm. for as long as you want them. That business model just was not is not sustainable for us. And even if it was, the amount of business that we would lose would not match the amount of business that we would pick up. So we kind of have to stick to the old model. Mm -hmm. So if so, what I mean, what types of in-person events or happenings, I'm going to call them, tend to emerge at Scarecrow, whether you plan them or they just organically form as part of the community day to day? What's that qualitative uh, texture? The qualitative texture. I mean, yes, we do have events. Uh, we had a really cool like Twin Peaks soundtrack release party a couple months ago. Thelma Schumacher came to the store just a couple of days ago. She's been in a few times, by the way. That woman is amazing. Editor of many Scorsese films. Editor of many Scorsese films. Mm -hmm. Everything, everyone since Raging Bull. Uh, She's an incredible person and the sweetest woman alive. She asked me if she should watch Ichi the Killer this time, which I don't know if you're familiar with Ichi the Killer. It's sort of one of the pioneering works of the Japanese extreme trend in the early 2000s. Mm. One of the most graphically weird movies I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, she probably shouldn't watch it, but it was really funny to have her ask me about it. And she go, I'm like, is this what you're looking for? And she says, yeah, Marty says this will kill me. That was pretty interesting. Anyway, so yeah, we, we try to bring in guests and we try to have events whenever we can. Our budget for that sort of thing is pretty low. We don't have the access to a lot of, like, for, for lack of a better word, talent that you might be able to bring in. So we do what we can. I think that the experiential difference that we really do offer on a minute-by-minute, day-to-day basis is – The simple breadth of the catalog, the space that's in front of people, and the people that work there. You can go on Netflix and Netflix will say, because you watch this, maybe you'll like that. But Netflix doesn't have a brain and a heart, and I've got 20 people in my store that do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Netflix will give you that metadata model. You watched Cooked, a series by Michael Pollan, so you might like Chef's Table, but the the human interaction might be... What is it about this particular movie that interests you qualitatively and let me jump to a completely different genre that has some weird connection and commonality to it? And Netflix can only recommend to you a movie that they've got, whereas we have something like 700% more titles than they do. And this actually relates to to a set of questions I want to start 
to explore with you around the culture and the cast of characters at Scarecrow. Mm. Specifically, what kinds of characters tend to hang around Scarecrow and around video stores in general? I used to be a video store clerk back in the in the 90s in Syracuse, New York, when I was a graduate student, and I was often a silent witness to these different layers of film people in the store. For instance, there was the elitist lovers of esoterica, there was the defenders of mainstream pulp, and even unabashed porn experts itching to share that expertise with anybody who in with an earshot. And it was kind of that like that film art equivalent of, of what you saw in Nick Hornsby's novel. Oh yeah. You know, High Fidelity, High Fidelity. about record stores. So I love that movie, by the way. Yeah. And uh when when I was in college that movie came out and I thought that's what I want to do with my life is be that guy. I like want to be the, the jerk. Cusack I want to be the jerk oh, who works no, no. in the record store or the, you know, the, the I want to be the, basically the esoteric specialist. Right. The, I think the, Jack the, Black, he calls himself yeah. a professional appreciator. Uh-huh. That's what I am. Yeah. So what do you see at Scarecrow? What kind of layers? Who are the, the folks there? Not necessarily the people who work there, but the people who, who go there regularly. And it's exactly of, the same. Yeah. There's just less of them. Mm. You know, we have people that are regulars that come in all the time. We know what they like. Uh, we have people that come in and like go to our staff pick section and see the names on the block on the boxes that we've said, you know, this is so-and-so's pick, this is so-and-so's pick. And they always rent the pick from that person. We definitely have horror freaks and anime fiends, guys who like action movies, people who love their British dramas. One of our most generous members is a guy who rents every TV show you can possibly imagine. He comes in twice a week, rents dozens of TV shows, brings them back. He's just a fiend for that stuff. So one of the things that Scarecrow has always been able to do is enable that obsession. Mm-hmm. And it can, that continues. It's something that we'll always be able to do. And are there specific film genres or directors or actors that seem to to, to be magnetized at Scarecrow? There's a very distinct, I'm just going to make something up because I love this person. There's a very distinct Krzysztof Kieślowski fan base <laughs> that somehow hangs around Scarecrow. Are there that level of, of specificity mm. that you've seen? Or I don't see a lot of that, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it doesn't exist because of the nature of my work there, I haven't actually worked on the floor too much in the last couple of years. So my experience with the people that come in and out of the store, the regulars, the day-to-day customers, is limited anymore. I wish there was a diehard Kieslowski fan base. My friend Kevin and I are huge uh, Kieslowski fans. I'll, I'll join you and we'll be, we'll be a Yeah, I, I mean, I think amongst cinephiles, this is not exactly a, a revolutionary point of view. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, you know, David Lynch has a, a, a huge following uh, in the Pacific Northwest, especially because of Twin Peaks. I'm really excited. I'm going to see Fire Walk With Me on 35 millimeter tomorrow night. Yeah, I'll be oh, there you're going to be there too? I'm taking a date. I hope she likes me. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> well, that's one way to tell. That's a, the ultimate litmus test. Yeah, right? Yeah. That's my favorite David Lynch movie. And I don't even like Twin Peaks all that much. And I think it got uh, critically maligned unfairly oh, yeah, in retrospect. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry for the tangent there. Anyway. Um, yeah, what, what was I saying? Well, are there any specific, oh, genres, specific genres and directors? Film lovers in the floor, and you, you don't see many. The 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 I don't see that many. There are you know we have our regulars who come in and look for the same sorts of things, but in general there are, there isn't like one genre or one director or a group of directors that seems to really galvanize people. Now, how about the people you you know more closely, mm-hmm. which are the people who choose to work at Scarecrow? Who are they, and what kinds of passions do they have, <laughs> and do they have particularities that people just don't know about? They, they do indeed. Uh, we've got uh, we had an, a huge anime lover. We've got uh, a, a woman who's like an incredible appreciator of gothic cinema. 
We've got a guy who loves Westerns. We've got a couple guys who love like old noir more than anything. I fall into this sort of weird exploitation thing. I like exploitation cinema, spaghetti Westerns, black exploitation, sexploitation. Those things are where I really gravitate to. Um, I, I'm also the one of the last diehard uh, mainstream guys. I still like shitty comic book movies mm-hmm. and action films. I love Hollywood action films from the 80s and 90s. We've all worked there for so long. Our tastes, I mean, we have those niche, those narrow focuses, but pretty much everybody who works there now likes everything. Mm-hmm. They'll watch anything. They won't like it all, but everybody that works there can have a conversation with you about just about any kind of movie. Mm-hmm. They have to be passionate to work at a type of retail establishment and archive that is fighting you know, on the yeah. ropes. And actually, this this brings up something. I was there actually last night walking around just to get the, the feel before we talked. And I did notice, in fact, all the different labels of all the different genres. They're not your typical mm-hmm. genre descriptions. are very either specific or they have a point of view. So when I saw the sexploitation room, yeah. I thought, huh, what's that? And I went in there and I said, well, it's not just porn. No. This is interesting. Since you mentioned sexploitation, now I, I'm... I think you were the source of that label, possibly. No, no. That I mean, room. that that room's been there long since, long before I was there. But that is one of my favorite rooms in the store. Not just, <laughs> I mean, the there is there is actual pornography in that room, but seventies, uh, eighties, and nineties. Seventies, eighties, and nineties X. Yeah, we do yeah. we do divide them up, um, and then there's just hard X, which is the last fifteen or so years. But the sexploitation section, in and of itself, has a ton of really valuable stuff. You can find a lot of Roberta Finley's work in there. You can find one of the filmmaker I recently found a couple years ago, a guy named John Hayes, made a bunch of sexploitation films, and I really think he's interesting. We've got some great – we have director sections in almost every room. So Doris Wishman, Russ Meyer, uh, Alex Dorenzi, who did Hardcore, Radley Metzger, those guys have their own sections. I think sexploitation is really valuable because I think exploitation is really valuable. I mean I find a lot of interesting stuff in there all the time. Try explaining that to to a normal person, and they, they think I'm completely. They think I'm a pervert. They might not be wrong, but well, speaking of abnormal people, I heard that Scarecrow is is not only of a talismanic importance to the Seattle film community, but it causes non-Seattle filmmakers to make pilgrimages to you guys. Is that true? It has happened before, mm-hmm. not not in a while, but yeah, it, it does happen. Who are some of those? Who have oh, made that well, I mean, track? famously, Tarantino like walked from downtown to the U District to go there. Uh, Sadly, that was before my time. 30 to 40 minute walk, if, if it's, not more. It's yeah. quite a walk. And apparently it was in the, just a dead of summer. So it was very, very hot out. I know Bertolucci's been there. Herzog's been there. John Woo actually left a really nice quote for a book we put together about 10, 12 years ago. But a lot of that stuff happened before my time. Let's see. Well, Zanussi came by a couple years ago. He was here for the Polish Film Festival. It was really cool. I have Christoph Zanussi's business card. Mm-hmm. I, like, I have his phone number. I could just call him. I want to do it. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't know who I was. And what is it about Scarecrow that they know about? How do they know about you? I have no idea. I mean, I just think that the volume of the collection itself mm-hmm. has gotten around over time. It's amazing how many people I run into that have heard of the place. When I go out of town, they know Scarecrow. I mean, pretty much every article of clothing I have has Scarecrow on it. I'm mm-hmm. wearing a jacket right now. People just know it. They've heard of it the same way I heard of it. Anecdotally, mm-hmm. I just sort of ran across something. And knew that it was a place that I had to go to. Mm-hmm. And can you share a memory that is either powerful, compelling, or emotionally charged of some in-store event or happening? What sticks in your mind when looking back at all your, what is it, 14 years <laughs> at Scarecrow? And don't edit. 
what comes as you know the, emotionally powerful memory. The coolest yeah. thing that ever happened to me at Scarecrow was um, one. Okay, so a group of my coworkers and I, every few months, we get together. We have what we call chili night. One of us has a really good chili recipe. He makes chili. We watch crummy movies that we dig up. What's this VHS? Never heard of this. Let's watch this. We found this movie called Furious. Um, that a, that a friend of ours who used to live in Seattle had told us about a long time ago, a guy named Zach Carlson, who now works for Alamo and he programs for Fantastic Fest. And he, he started his own video label called Bleeding Skull with a guy named Joe Ziemba. Anyway, um, so we'd heard of this movie and it sounded really cool. So we watched it and it was this early 80s martial arts movie made by a guy named Tim Everett who was making his first film out of film school and it had a very low budget sort of shot on the sly in a, in a couple of respects, but it's completely nuts. It's about these martial artists who, uh, who fight her are fighting aliens who have a, a restaurant where they lure people in and they turn the customers into the food. Um, and then there's a, there's a dragon in a, in a extra dimensional space. I don't know. It's, it's not even worth explaining to you, but it's kind of amazing. It's exactly the kind of thing that I like where no amount of money and talent in the world could have made that movie better. It, it exists solely because somebody wanted, somebody had to make a movie and nobody told him how not to do it. So we watched this movie. We all go crazy for it. My friend Laird texts me a few days later and he's like, you know, the guy who directed that movie lives on Vashon Island. So I look him up, I Google him. Turns out he's got a little production company. He worked in special effects for a long time. So I cold call him. Yeah, I'm expecting I'm expecting to get like a secretary at his office or something like that. Picks up the phone. Hi, my name's Matt Lynch. I'm from Scarecrow Video. I'm trying to reach uh, Tim Everett. Yeah, this is Tim. What do you want? Uh, oh, uh, and I tell him the story. I'm like, well, my friends and I watched your movie and we have we had just started this screening room at Scarecrow Video. And and I would like to show your movie Furious. And there's this really long pause. You want to show Furious? He had no idea that anybody had seen this movie in a very, very long time. He was a little embarrassed by it, wrongly in my opinion, but I can see why. It's definitely an amateurish first work. He he graciously allowed us to show it, and he came out to like sign autographs and stuff. We packed our tiny little screening room like four times showing this movie, and here comes Tim, who's the nicest guy in the world. And he brings like his daughter and his son and his kids get to watch like fans mm -hmm. get their get autographs from this from this guy for this crazy movie. And then he actually managed to get it put out on DVD through this tiny little DVD company. And uh, my, my coworker, Kevin, and I recorded a podcast with Tim just about the making of the movie. They put that on there as an extra on the DVD. That's uh, pretty cool. Yeah. I got to discover something mm -hmm. that was neat from the store. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Okay, so so Scarecrow is now more than a video store. It is an officially recognized archive, yes. and it received nonprofit status. And I saw a video actually online showing uh, Scarecrow management and local film artists who went to Seattle City Hall yeah. and lobbied the city council to receive the designation. Can you share why achieving? This designation as a as a nonprofit archive was important, and how did it change life at Scarecrow now? Well, Scarecrow becoming a nonprofit was really important just to keep us open. Because of that, we're able to accept donations. We're allowed to sell memberships. We're allowed to have volunteer labor. Um, we still have a paid staff, but we we do use a lot of volunteer labor. Those things, you know, help keep overhead down. They help defray costs of of just 
keeping the place open, opening and operating it. And it's really important to us to keep the place open and available to the public. One of the reasons we decided to go nonprofit was because we were all really afraid that this massive collection, which is, as far as we know, the biggest in the world, would get sold off piecemeal or worse, sold to a university or or an institution that would keep it in under lock and key. We really think it's important to keep all this stuff available to the public. We're one of the last places where you can find some of the stuff that we have. And the idea that getting those things split up or lost or hidden is terrifying to me. I just can't imagine like these pieces of art that may or may not be a, a massive amount of value. They may not be, you know, the part Decalogue. of the canon. Yeah. yeah, they may not be canonized. That's a good way of putting it. But anything that slips away is lost. Anything that's lost, that's terrible. I can't imagine not being able to have access to some of those things. The, the way that it's changed us is that it's just allowed us to sort of go in new directions in order to keep the collection available to people, which is which is our, our mission. Mm-hmm. That's what we're there to do. And what are some of those unique titles or pieces that you're talking about, whether canonical or not? Um, I mean, most of the stuff that I would say not is of the kind of thing that I love. The deep cut exploitation stuff, the weird sex blow movie, the crazy horror movie that you're never, ever, ever going to find again. We do have some pretty interesting stuff, though. We're, I'm fond of telling the story about how our copy of John Frankenheimer's TV version of Turn of the Screw was given to us by him. It's his mm-hmm. own personal copy mm-hmm. that he gave to the store. But most of the rarest stuff is the stuff that you don't know is rare. And how do you balance? I mean, if some of this stuff is rare or it's the unique copy, but at the same time you want to keep it accessible and not under locks, mm-hmm. there's a risk there right. of either it wearing down or, or being stolen. I mean, what's the... Well, you just have to trust people and you have to take good care of it. And we do unfortunately have to require people to leave pretty large security deposits for some of that stuff. We wish we didn't have to, but we do because it's irreplaceable. But yeah, that's basically just the risk you run. I can't tell you how many tapes I've repaired over the years, mm. you know? Yeah. And what is your relationship with other Seattle film organizations, such as, you know, the Northwest Film Forum mm-hmm. or SIF, the Seattle International Film Festival? What, what We kind have of very programs? good reciprocal, reciprocal arrangements with them. Um, we mm. don't share a lot of programming. I mean, we have a good relationship with SIF. We have a sponsorship agreement with them. We collaborate with the Northwest Film Forum as frequently as we can. Uh, we have a really good relationship with the GI the Grand Illusion, mm. uh, one of the best theaters There's in the town, the Grand the Illusion Cinema in the yeah, University in the U District, just yeah. a couple blocks away from Scarecrow. Great little jewel box theater. We have a really good relationship with those with those things. Our mission's a little bit different than theirs. We're not exhibitors. Mm-hmm. But when you do a partnership, what is it? Do you bring one of the archive elements out in, uh, in we, public we have, showing? Or we have done the... that in the past. We did a thing with Film Forum and the Grand Illusion a couple years ago. There was the Ho Shao Shen retro that was traveling around the country. Uh, if you're not familiar with Ho Shao Shen, he's this amazing Taiwanese filmmaker, and his work is largely inaccessible in the West. The GI and the Film Forum were not able to screen the complete retro, so we kind of filled in some of the gaps in our screening room with some region-coded DVDs that we had. So, yeah, yeah, that's the kind of thing that we'll try to do. And those are all great organizations with very specific missions, and they all sort of – all three dovetail – you know, what about other video or film organizations across the country? What are some of the notable organizations people should be aware of? For instance, when I was in graduate school a few years ago, I relied on Facets Video mm-hmm. in Chicago. I would get the big-ass print catalog. Yeah, that thing was a phone book. Yeah, it was. An order really difficult to find foreign titles at the mm-hmm. time that would be mailed to me. 
And what are some of those notable ones nowadays that are still out there? Facets is a great one. Um, A lot of the big archives and video stores are gone. Like Vidiots is is encountering its own problems in L.A. Uh, La Video in San Francisco is mostly gone. Kim's, of course. Everybody knows Kim's in New York. Gone. Now it's vaulted in some basement in Italy. There aren't a lot of big video organizations like that anymore. There are a lot of really cool upstart boutique labels that are putting stuff out all the time. Like I mentioned Vinegar Syndrome or Bleeding Skull. Um, One of the bigger ones is Shout. They're putting out a lot of really cool stuff. There are all kinds of cool little boutique labels that that are putting out all kinds of great little genre movies and classic and contemporary films. Kino Lorber and Twilight Time have been doing an incredible job putting out really obscure stuff. The studios themselves are putting out on uh, Manufacture on Demand and Burn on Demand all kinds of great stuff but, all the time. But none of these are physical locations that people go to, yeah, right? Yeah, there, there are much and mu- there are fewer and fewer all the time. You know, facets exist mostly uh, by mail. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something that we would love to do at Scarecrow, but it's just sort of financially unfeasible. We can't really mail that stuff out. And I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, but then then again, this was years ago that facets had its own theater. You know, I don't in know. Chicago. And I'm wondering whether they do or not. Is that something you ever considered? I mean, you have a screening we room, We have a little right? screening Well, for a long time, we actually did have a theater at Scarecrow before my time, but we did have a little movie theater upstairs. That's long gone, but you know, we did have one. The screening room that we have, it's pretty tiny. We've been working on renovating it, but finding the money to do that is not easy. And is there admission or it's just- No, hey, no, it's we're free. Screening. We're just yeah. like showing some movie, come and see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So- can you tell us, speaking of that, what's coming up at Scarecrew? What events or screenings are coming down the pike now? Here we are. It's, uh, what are we, early March or early mid- March. March? So think about March and April. What's coming up? What, um, what should people be aware of? There, we don't have anything big lined up right now. We're working on a screening of Tampopo because there's a new restoration that's coming out in late, late April. So we're working on that. Yeah, and the, and the screening room schedule. I mean, there's one today, and I was yeah, thinking, yeah. oh, damn, I'm doing this podcast instead of going to the third man. Yeah, yeah, the third man's plan tonight, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've got Unforgiven on Saturday yeah, the 11th. We have, like, these monthly themes that we do. Uh, so this month is March Badness, so it's all bad guys. Wow. It's all sort of centered around bad guys. So, yeah, Unforgiven was a was a go-to because, obviously, Gene Hackman is so good in that movie. But... Mm-hmm. The Ipress Files on March 15th. Yeah, that's, a, reading some that's like a screening group. This guy could, puts his little group together. He calls it Film Fanatic, so he has a little discussion with his people so he's showing the upcrest file this week mm-hmm. that's a good spy movie yeah video nasty film festival on saturday the 20th yeah i'm still trying to figure out what exactly is going into that <laughs> as long as it's nasty you've got a sort yeah of a i think that's holder. i think that's like local filmmakers and short films and stuff where i'm trying i actually have to start promoting that this this week and uh, i'm trying to get some copy from the guy who's running it so so let us know where people could go online to learn more about Scarecrow and its collection. Where should they go? Honestly, the best place to go is just the website, scarecrow.com. You can get our calendar on there. You can find out about events down there. We put up blog posts all the time. Sometimes they're just nice articles written by our volunteers and our staff. Other times it's here's what's coming out this week. That's pretty much the best place to go. We also have a, a biweekly newsletter that you can sign up for on the website. Or you can just come into the store. Honestly, the best advertisement for Scarecrow is Scarecrow. I strongly urge anyone within the sound of my voice to walk through its doors. You'll never want to go back. Yeah, and given what we said today, you definitely need to go there in person and tell us where it is and what is the closest bus line, I guess. Uh, well, you can catch it in the U District at 5030 Roosevelt Way Northeast. It's within shot of many, many bus lines, the 44, the 67. Take the light rail and catch a 44 right up to the U District and you got to see it. It's right. the greatest place in the whole world. Go in person, use public transportation, go analog, people. Knock on my door. I'll give you the tour. Before we wrap up, I just want to hear 
you you described it a little bit at the beginning of the podcast, but I mean, you've been with Scarecrow for 14 years. I mean, from a very personal perspective, what is it about the place, the people, the nature of what you do? Why are you there? It can't just be inertia, right? Um, well, I mean, definitely inertia is part of it. Uh, I'm a lazy man. I don't have a lot of ambition. <laughs> yeah. I don't really belong anywhere else. It's the place that allows me – I get paid to play with my toys all day. Uh, I can't really imagine ever being – ever feeling that comfortable anywhere else, ever feeling that safe, ever feeling that happy. Scarecrow drives me fucking crazy. Like it's – nobody who works at the same place for 15 years is there because they love it all the time. But I am there because I love it. I love Scarecrow. It's my church. It's my second home. I can't – I will never fit in as well anywhere, anywhere. Not even just talking specifically in terms of a job or a career, but with a person, with a home. I'll never fit in anywhere else as well as I fit in at Scarecrow. That place is a part of my blood. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who are uh, film aficionados, film art aficionados, these physical places, the texture they provide – the personal interactions is just invaluable. And for those who don't have that that passion and who rely on streaming, should try it out. Just Good go luck there. To you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See something new. Matt, thank you so much for for being here with us and talking about Scarecrow and such so hugely important to Seattle. Not just Seattle, but the whole nation given hundred and thirty thousand and growing and in so very few titles. Yeah. Thanks uh, for having me. This was great. Great. Thank you. And thank you for spiking my coffee with whiskey. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io, where more podcasts, videos, and written content live. Along with this podcast episode, you will find a related article where you can find out more about Matt, more about Scarecrow, and it will include links to additional information such as the upcoming events happening at Scarecrow. And by the way, I'm trying something new. During our conversation, Matt and I took a a 10-minute detour to discuss his love for exploitation films and for films that depict genuinely scuzzy lives. I will be releasing that as a bonus mini-episode in a couple of days. Of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place.